Hey, Boudreaux. Hey, Jen. What are you listening to this week? Welcome to What Are You Listening To?, the weekly podcast created to share music and foster positive connections one song at a time. Some of the songs are old, some new, all good. I'm Jen Tully, and this week I'm joined by an Emmy Award-winning producer and filmmaker from Penny Rock Productions, Boudreaux Partida. Penny Rock Productions specializes in short films, music videos, client commercial production, online promotional materials, and has worked in collaboration with multiple television series. Penny Rock has also recently gone into post-production for a new documentary feature called Bloody and Bruised, The Untold Story of the Back Room. We'll learn more about Boudreaux and his upcoming film, In Between the Music. Also, did you know that now on Spotify, you can listen to the show with the songs we discuss incorporated. Just search for What Are You Listening To With Music. If you're not listening on Spotify, be sure to give the playlist a listen and then tune into our conversation. With that, let's get started. Boudreaux, what are you listening to this week? Hey, Jen. Well, I know that we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, the upcoming film that we got going on here at Penny Rock, and it's called Bloody and Bruised, The Untold Story of the Backroom. So one of the main bands that was signed out of the backroom was The Dangerous Toys from right here in Austin, Texas. So to start things off, we're going to check out uh, their number one hit that actually helped them get a gold record. through Columbia Records, and the song is called Teasing and Pleasing. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I was, you know, Boudreaux, I cornered you when I first met you because I have been dying to have an episode where I get to talk about, like, my 80s metal hair bands. And when I saw you, um, and I was introduced to you through another great movie that um, that you did called Sunset at Dry Creek, which was also yeah. about another Austin institution. Um, for those of you that are from the Austin area, Dry Creek Cafe and Boat Dock. Um, and your movie was spectacular. It was one of those films that, um, you know, whether you were able to go to Dry Creek, like it brought a smile to your face to remember it. And if you weren't, you were sad that you never got to go there. That's what your movie elicited in me. That was the reaction. And so when I heard you were doing Bloody and Bruised, I thought, oh, man, like nobody is better suited to handle like this particular club and this kind of music. But you like this is this had to have been like a dream come true for you. Tell me tell me about it and why this song is like such a big part of it. Um, Because I I think Dangerous Toys were like they were pretty like they were kind of a staple at the back room. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that short documentary that you mentioned, that was I've been in production for. Uh, bloody and bruised since about got us towards right around when the pandemic was really kind of officially kicked off really. And it kind of gave me the opportunity to let, really think about what projects I had coming up. And it kind of worked out for me because I had kind of blurted out on another, in another podcast in an interview, like I was being interviewed about a horror film that I was working on and it had mm-hmm. come out and so I got asked, so what do you have coming up next? And I kind of just blurted out, 
I'm thinking about doing a documentary about the back room. And right away, my producer texted me and says, oh, are we officially doing this now? <laughs> and so from right then and there, it kind of launched. Uh, I lived down the street from the back room and I used to go there all the time. In fact, I want to say that it was probably one of the very first places I went to in Austin uh, as wow. a college kid. And uh, I used to walk there. And uh, it was a great venue that had lots of great bands, a uh, great crowd. You could go to the one side and enjoy a show, or you can go to the game side and play some pool or video games and have a, and have some really cheap drinks. That was another thing that it was really well known for. So yeah. you could go there with literally $10 in your pocket or less and have a great night. And uh, I had always kind of just thought, you know, thought I would like to do a documentary about the back room. And so uh, I talked to my co-producer about it, John Ju, and right away we were we started thinking about who are all the different people that we can get involved with. And so we knew we kind of started setting up, setting up a timeline uh, of events that happened there. And uh, in doing that, we talked to, uh, to somebody that actually used to work there. So we knew we needed somebody that worked that was on the inside. You know, we knew right. we needed to talk to somebody that had worked there, knew the club from inside and out that could help us with the history of the club. And, that, and that's how we came up with uh, Tammy Moore, our other uh, co-producer and also co-writer. Um, and from there, we also gained Adam Salinas, who's an associate producer. And and now we have an executive producer whose name is Ray Sagarin, who's also in the film uh, as an interviewee and uh, now joined our core team of putting this film together. So we kind of started shooting tons of interviews just with different musicians, different uh, staff members. Uh, and over the span of nine months, we shot about 60 plus interviews, you know? Wow. And, and so it kind of just, and it was a perfect time because everybody was kind of at home and, right. you know, nobody, all the clubs were open. And so we kind of just asked, can we shoot this interview at this one venue? They're like, come on, come on over, you know, do whatever. And right. uh, all the musicians were home. Everybody was home. So we were able to coordinate a lot of these interviews fairly easily. Um, and since then, you know, we, we've learned, I've, you know, I, when we first announced this project, people were saying, well, who are these guys? You know, are they it's the production company from California? They don't know what they're doing. And so right away, we released a trailer, you know, four or five months in. And that really gave people a glimpse, a really a, a sense of like, oh, wow, these guys are serious. They actually know what they're doing. And I will say, if you haven't seen the trailer, listeners, definitely head over to it's on the Penny Rock website, which I'll yeah. give the address for at the end. Um, but the trailer is for sure worth a watch. I think that. <laughs> The trailer is brilliant. And I like spoiler alert, I won't say what it is, but you have to watch all the way to the end. The end yeah. of that trailer is magic. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, not that part. I was like, I was saying, oh, yeah, we're going to use that in the trailer. <laughs> so good. It's so, so good. Uh, and it, so, it, so and in, it, doing, in, in that history, in, in finding out that history of the club, you know, I had known who the Dangerous Toys were. I, I had had their cassette when I was a kid. I grew up a heavy yeah. metal and punk rock kid. And uh, and I knew where they were, but I didn't really know too much about their history and much less that they had actually come from the back room right here in Austin. So in doing so, in doing the research and in interviewing Jason McMaster and Paul Idell and a couple other people from Dangerous Toys, uh, we we you know, we we kind of revealed the story of how they the Dangerous Toys. Uh, yes, we talk about their history of their previous bands and stuff. But we also find out that, you know, 
they actually played the second South by Southwest in 1988. Wow. And kind of the stereotypical kind of staple of they're a band playing in a club and there's an A&R guy, A&R woman actually, that was in the club and said, we want to give you guys a record deal. Like kind of like the classic dream wow. for a musician. And that's what happened to them. And actually Jason McMaster told us that, you know, he was kind of like, whatever, you know, this is, this can't be real. Like, Hey, go talk to the guys, go talk to the band over there. They're the real suckers. Right. And uh, so he kind of blew it off. And, but little did they know that only a couple months later, they were flown out to California. They were shooting a music video and they ended up shooting the music video for teasing and pleasing, which ended up going to number one on MTV. And, and eventually uh, once they signed with Columbia records, they ended up getting a gold record out of that. And so uh, it just kind of launched their careers, you know, really, that was kind of what the, the backroom was. And it's so, you know, like this was a time it's, it's, it's almost like we have to go back a little bit and paint a picture, right? This is like 1989 when the song is out, when it's on heavy rotation on MTV, MTV's like, it's not brand new anymore, but it's still like in its heyday. I mean, that's what we did after school. We went over to somebody's house, we turned on MTV and we just watched videos or we had appointment viewing like you and I, I'm sure enjoyed Headbangers Ball together. Um, (laughs) Like all of the things like this was just such a a integral part of how we grew up back then like that's what MTV didn't have shows they only played videos so it's funny because I was thinking about this episode and how much I've been wanting to talk about this genre Um, and I was laughing at just thinking of what a different time and place it was back then and every show I talk a lot about lyrics and how important they are to me and then I realized for this episode except when I'm talking about this genre, this genre is all about like the visceral, the visceral reaction, yeah. right? Like the emotions and the feelings it stirs. And I really don't even care what they're saying most of the time. Like now it's, <laughs> it's interesting to go back and like, look at the words and somebody like a dangerous toys were like, so tongue in cheek, so double entendre. Like it really is funny to like go back and see what it is that they were saying, but I didn't care about any of that. I cared about the presentation, seeing them in the video. Like, again, it was all about just that reaction that the music gave me. And I loved it. And, and, you know, and when you say kind of their lyrics, you know, they were kind of tongue in cheek, they were part of what was called at the time. And and now it's more of a popular popularized term, but what was kind of known as sleaze rock, you know, yes. uh, Motley Crue was kind of like big on that and, and, yeah. rat and, and, and poison, you know? So, and it was, it was kind of like, uh, you know, these guys are partying and they're having a good time and they kind of fit in that whole little genre of sleaze rock. And, uh, now it's also at the time now it's currently known as old man rock right. <laughs> you know? right. and oh, I guess old woman rock, but like at the time it was sleaze rock. <laughs> Uh, but they were kind of, you know, they were very loose with, you know, they, they would come up with songs. And one of the main songs, another song that, you know, I know we're not playing it, but it, another important hit that was for them was, you know, going back to tongue, tongue in cheek and kind of like wink, wink was they had a song called Sportin' a Woody, you know? Yes. And, <laughs> and we actually used that. That's actually in the titles, opening title sequence of the film. To yes. kind of, you know, and it's the entire opening credits are cut is cut to that song, you know? Uh, and, but I think that's helps set the tone of, for the entire film of what this backroom 
place was and how it was important to a lot of up and coming bands. Uh, and it kind of served as an incubator, you know, to help these bands form, you know, kind of cut their teeth and really right. help form, form themselves as a band. And, and, and at the same time, it was also a venue that had all these rolling road shows that big names came through there, you know, when they were still either, you know, starting off or on the way down, but, you know, Raven, Megadeth, you know, those are some of the first shows in the mid eighties. Wow. Uh, but, you know, eventually, you know, the Ramones and, and then once it got into the grunge and, and, and uh, alternative stuff, James Addiction, Pearl Jam, you know, uh, fam- famously Pearl Jam played to like less than 50, you know, around 50 people, you know, wow. at the back room, a lot, all these huge bands went through there, Marilyn Manson, you know, and, and it pretty much through most of the early 2000s, they were still pretty big, uh, pretty big names going through there, you know, until it's actual demise in 2006. Uh, so the film kind of explores, it's basically a history lesson. It's a, it's a kind of a fun history lesson to kind of, you know, kind of show these, a younger generation where current artists kind of where they came from a little bit, you know, and kind of teach them that, you know what, it wasn't all about digital downloads and it wasn't all about just, Hey, we're going, you know, I'm checking in on Facebook to see where we're going to go tonight. It's, you know, there are these bands that were working hard to make flyers and put up CDs and, you know, uh, going not door to door, but like, uh, uh, you know, person to person that like, hey, yeah. come to our show. They were really working the pavement to say, you know. To say, it was a totally different kind of audience acquisition back yes, then. <laughs> yes. and then, and, and then they were, you know, and they were working hard to like just get people in the door so that they could get, make a little money, you know, make a little bit of beer money maybe. <laughs> right. Well, but, and then once they did, they really had to deliver in terms of presentation. And I feel like places like the back room gave them a chance to really hone in on how to deliver yeah. in the set in like a presentation sense, because it was the time of music videos. It was the time of like, you know, the power ballads and the big loud rock shows. Like you had to have, you had to be able to match that visceral reaction with a performance. Right. And so places that allowed artists to kind of hone those performances into perfection or into what they are that we see on MTV now, I think, right. I think it's just, it's, it's, you can't overlook the importance of what a venue like that brought for artists like that in a time when presentation was paramount, right? Almost more important than anything else. And yeah. I think that, um, I think that dangerous toy, uh, dangerous toys are, are like a great band to showcase that. And then, and different, totally different from your second pick. So tell me what your second song was. So, uh, you know, the back room helped formulate and, and form a lot of musical acts that got to be well known and got signed. And one of those other bands that got signed out of, out of the back room was a band called Pariah. Uh, now the reason we showcase Pariah in the film and why it's important as well is because they're actually kind of the opposite of dangerous toys. And yes, they ended up getting signed out of the back room, but there lots of trouble happened with their record. Uh, but they ended up, they did end up getting a record and I'll talk about it more later, but, uh, they're, when they finally did release a big time record record, they got uh, signed out of the back room, uh, by Geffen records. And okay. they, one of their big, uh, one of their big hits from Pariah originally from San Antonio, but kind of formulated, formed themselves in Austin at the back room. 
uh, and they came out with a album called To Mock a Killing Bird. And off that uh, album is a track called Powerless. Yes, this one, like again, so many things, so many emotions and things to say. I had no idea they were from San Antonio, just like I had no idea Dangerous Toys was from Austin. Like, like that was news to me um, until you and I started chatting. Um, and I, I do also have to give props to this album name. To Mock a Killing Bird is yeah. a rad name for an album. <laughs> I'll fight yeah. anybody who argues with me on that. That is a great album name. <laughs> Yeah, and the thing is that they were a really great band. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, things turned out differently for them. And that's one of the other things that we explore in the film because, uh, and and it's public knowledge that, you know, the band broke up and the reason they broke up was because of one of the, uh, one of the founding members of the band was Sims Ellison. Um, kind of a short reader's, digest version of it is basically the 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 band got signed by geffen records but this was at a time when um you know grunge alternative was starting to kind of take over and heavy rock wasn't as big uh and and hard rock like pariah wasn't wasn't going to be uh it was kind of like going into the past and so geffen what eventually happened was they, because they were so busy with really perfecting Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion albums, you know, Axl mm-hmm. Rose and, and, the, and the promoters, they all really wanted to make that album perfect because they knew that they had, they had a limited time to to really release that record. And what happened was Geffen Record eventually, they released Pariah's album, but eventually dropped them from the label. And it's kind of, there's lots of speculation as to why that was, uh, you know, and what exactly happened but unfortunately uh when that happened you know uh sims ellison who is the the bass player for the band he and his brother kyle uh along with the other members it was a time that was filled with a lot of turmoil for the ellison brothers and unfortunately you know after ending some relationships and some other things uh sims ellison ended up you know taking his own life um Mm. So the band immediately broke up and the band members went on to other things. And and that was one of those bands that, that could have been really, really great. But unfortunately, the timing of things and the, with the record label, uh, it just didn't work out. But some good did come out of that and that the, uh, the, the Sims Foundation was formed. And now, and that's yes. actually around to this very day here in Austin, uh, that they help Austin musicians and their families, you know, uh, kind of with their mental health and their mental well-being. And, and, you know, very much like the Health Alliance for Austin Musicians that takes care of the physical side of musicians and artists, this takes care of their mental state and how they're doing and and make sure that they get some help if they need it, you know? And it's a a great organization, too. I'm really glad you shouted them out. Sims Foundation is fantastic. So is Health Alliance for Musicians. Like, those are both. um, I'll, I'll put links to both. Uh, nonprofits. And again, too, we always say this anytime we talk about um, suicide or people that have taken their own life. If you or anybody that you know is struggling, please remember that there is help at 988. Um, That is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. So please, if you or anyone you know is struggling, 988 is there for you. Um, And I think it's important that we share the stories of musicians that went a different direction or didn't have the fairy tale that 
you would hope to, you know, the way Dangerous Toys did with the A&R rep discovering them, right? Like you can't ignore the stories that didn't turn out to be Cinderella stories, right? And this is a band that like, like music to break stuff to, right? Like anytime I think of Pariah, that's what I think of. But then in a song like Powerless, like you have that, you can hear this pain, you can hear what they're going through. And then at two minutes in this song, you get this great surprise, like, electric guitar solo that you think like is the song over what what's happening are we slowing down then the drums kick in again and you're just like right back to it it's just brilliant like it's why i love this genre i think it's it's so underrated and also too the social commentary wrapped into some of these songs like and i'm not saying like some of the sleaze rock or the hair bands that we talked about but if you want to get into like the lyrics or you want to look at social commentary um, from that time period, I think you can find that in a song like Powerless, right? Like you can see some of those things. And I think that that's really important. And oftentimes bands in this genre get kind of kicked to the curb, I think, for being simple or too loud or not really saying anything or all about access, excess or, you know, toxic masculinity or whatever. And yes, there's all of that. But I think you can still like music even if it's problematic or even if it has themes that don't resonate today, I don't think that means you have to like lock it away and never talk about it. Right. I think that's how things never change. Right. If yeah, you never yeah. talk about it or you refuse to look at it, um, nothing's ever going to be different. It was, you know, it back then the hair metal and then, you know, the, the heavy metal was kind of seen as what, what was, what was it that was scaring parents at the time? Yeah. You know, and what, what was it that was, it was considered dangerous, you know? Yeah. And uh, eventually that ended up kind of transitioning into rap, you know, rap was, was considered dangerous, you know, and, and what was, what was it stating? And, and then, so it's, it's just an interesting thing that we also kind of explore in the film is towards the end of the backroom's life, we kind of explore kind of the, the aspect of, well, the Austin music scene was changing. The actual, not just the the actual music, but the physical locations of where people could go see certain types of music. That's true. Uh, and then, so by that point, by the mid two thousands, you know, it, the a lot of the music had already shifted downtown. Uh, not a lot of it was coming to the east side, and uh, you know the. The manager's son at the time, who uh, Sean McCarthy, who was one of the day managers and one of the general managers towards the end of the, of the club's life, his son started booking hip hop shows, and you know the the crowd started being different, and the mm-hmm. the, the 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 audience part, you know, uh, audience attendance was changing, and then eventually in two thousand six, people were saying, well, you know, this is it's not happening as much anymore. It's just not as fun, and eventually it was decided to close the club down. So people are still kind of, there's lots of speculation as, well, was it the rap scene? Was it the hip hop scene? Uh, was it just a, a different time that, you know, it was time for the music scene to change. The landscape of Austin music was changing, you know? Um, the, nobody really knows why. Was it, was rent, you know, just being on the property, yeah. just, you know, un- ungodly expensive and just decided to cut, close it down. Nobody really knows why it closed down, but okay. still, it, it's still an interesting fact that, you know, uh, 
obviously the music changed and then eventually the club ended up closing, but a lot of people still miss it. And a lot of people uh, still remember very fondly. And that's why I'm making the film is number one for the people that were there. Right. And people that experienced it. And number two, to kind of help, you know, I see young people all the time. They post, uh, you know, stuff from emos, emos East. People, right. people, a lot of people don't know that emos East, you know, uh, yeah. that's where the back room was located. That's where it was. Yeah. And they tore it down and they built emos East on top of it. And so I've always kind of jokingly said, I want to grab these kids by their shoulders and say, do you realize the holy ground that you're standing on? Yes. Do you realize how many people and musicians and artists and Austin icons have gone through these premises and, and we're through and, and, you know, that was part one of Jen's interview with Boudreaux Partita. Join us next week to hear the rest of the interview and Jen's pick.